Life had gotten easier since her family had moved to the aptly named Pleasant Valley. Papa wasn't such a bear all the time. Mama's rugs brought more money, and her brother spent more time helping Papa at their mill than at the house. As for her, there were lots of cute boys to flirt with, and after her love letters being rejected by the first few of the local boys, she'd finally found love with her neighbor, Guy Barry. He was so nice to her, and they had so many fun times together. She was going to love being married to him. She spent many weeks happily thinking about their wedding, until Guy brought her the bad news. Their families were never going to allow them to be together. How could they do this to them? Who did they think they were to keep her from her love? In a fit of rage, she began planning. Papa always kept some rough-on-rats poison around for his mill. She always made the family their breakfast. Her course of action seemed almost too easy. Early in the morning on that fateful June in 1896, Celie made up the family's cottage cheese, complete with a hefty dose of rough-on-rats. She watched carefully as everyone ate, but no one seemed to suspect a thing. Later that afternoon, all three of them, Mama, Papa, and Walter, were vomiting uncontrollably. She hadn't expected that, but they were almost out of the way of her true love. Her Papa died by the next day. Walter took longer. He lasted nearly a week. And Mama? Somehow Mama got better. It pained her to do it, but she had to give Mama a second dose of the rat poisoning. When Mama was out of the way, she was free from her family, and all that was left was to free her love from his family and their objections. Welcome back to A&A's Tall Tales. I'm Andrea. And I'm Amanda. And this is the Seely Rose House. Seely Rose. Celia Rose is a crazy person who, if you can tell, poisoned her family with rat poisoning. Yay! Over a boy. Yep. And then she tried to poison his family. Not cool. Not at all. I think the best place to start with this one is at the beginning. I would agree that's usually the best place to start. (laughs) Not always. I mean, sometimes... Celia Rose, Celia Francis Rose, was born on a March day in 1873, March 13th to be exact, to her father, David S. Rose, and her mother, Rebecca Rose. She had two older siblings, Walter Rose and Julia Ann. They lived in Pike County, Ohio, which is down in southern Ohio, almost on the West Virginia border. Their story wasn't much of a a happy one, really, ever. It all started with her father, David, buying a tract of land in Pike County on the side of a ridge. So a very steep hill with a very little bit of actual usable land. And getting married he her father was never a happy guy he was never a friendly man to be around apparently he he had a reputation for being irascible and from what i'd read and found that had some good reason later in life but i believe some of it was just his personality too so in 1855 right before marrying rebecca he bought a mountainside and began planning on logging it because David Rose was a miller by trade. It's speculated that his plans were to log that hillside, use the money from logging that to most likely buy or build his own lumber mill. Those plans were interrupted by the Civil War breaking out in 1861. David at the time was 30... 31 years old, I want to say. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds about right. I have it written down somewhere, and I just can't apparently read my own writing. Yeah. David was 31 when the Civil War broke out, and he joined the 63rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry. Like most men in the area did, they chose a side and they signed up. 
Well, he, again, was a miller by trade, and he had spent most of his time milling lumber, but he also had some experience with grist mill. And a grist mill is what mills all of the grain and food. So he was consigned to the kitchen duty, basically. He was feeding the army. Somehow, despite being in a position where he was just supposed to be milling grains and making sure that everybody was fed, he ended up in the middle of active combat. And in the course of the three years that he was enlisted, he sustained several pretty substantial injuries. I mean, he lost an eye. He was deaf in one ear. He was hard of hearing in the other. And he was permanently disabled by the after effects of dysentery. By 1864, he was done. So during his military career, David actually deserted on a regular basis and went home to help his family. See, his wife had two young children on her own on this mountainside in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. And all she had to make money at that time was weaving some rugs. And he would get injured. He would have enough of whatever was going on with the army. And he would just go home, help his family out. They would retrieve him, and the cycle would start all over again. Yeah, but, I mean, talk about, I literally didn't sign up for this because you sit there and you think, I'm gonna be milling grain and making food, and then all of a sudden you can barely walk, can't see, can't hear. And that's, I guess, kind of how the army saw it, too, because when he finally deserted the last time in 1864... They not only didn't come looking for him, but they also gave him an honorable discharge. Honorable? Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. Okay. To be fair, it was also, he was disabled and down, could not work for months after he got home. Yeah, I guess that's that's a pity discharge at that point. Yeah, they probably took one look at this guy and they're like, he can't hear in one ear, he's hard of hearing out the other. He's got an eye missing. He can't hardly walk. He is dying of dysentery at home. I think we're just going to let him let him be and not embarrass his family. I, I'm guessing if you look up the symptoms of dysentery and some of the after effects of it, I'm pretty sure they probably didn't think he was going to live. So they left him alone and they he was bedridden. So... At some point, he got over being bedridden enough to continue working, and there's not much on this family for nine years. So between 1864 and 1873, it's almost impossible to find any kind of written history. They were just a typical family in that that time frame. And then 1873 rolls around. At the time, the Rose's son, Walter, was 16, And their daughter, Julia, was 14. He's a disabled war veteran who's constantly in a bad mood, can barely continuously work. And his aging wife has another baby. And they welcome Celia Rose to the family. There was Uh, some talk around town. Yeah, good. (laughs) That's where my brain went. Well, surprisingly enough, I've heard this story from the time that I was probably seven, maybe eight years old, and I didn't know any of this prior to coming to Malabar Farm area history of this family, and the entire time that I was doing the initial research on it, it never crossed my mind to go, oh, hey, the 16-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl, and what are the likelihood of... this disabled man and his wife having another baby when there's two teenagers in a secluded area that are of childbearing age. Yeah. That's what the town got talking about. That's what the locals started talking about is how did David and Rebecca have another baby when he can barely get around and stay working and keep them all fed. That was never proven one way or the other. Either scenario kind of lines up with the fact that it became very clear very quickly that there was something wrong with Celia. She was slow, (laughs) to put it nicely. 
there are so many different ways that it was put. She was described in, in this research, she was described as mentally challenged, mildly developmentally disabled, mentally ill, a full grown woman with the mind of a child. And my favorite was mentally deficient. Mm. So she, not to be indelicate here, (laughs) but especially in that era, in that time frame, dysentery and some of the injuries that David had could have caused some less than fantastic uh, traits (laughs) to be passed along. And then at the same time, at that point, Rebecca was not young and by today's standards would most likely be considered um, an at-risk pregnancy as far as age goes. And then you're talking 1872 and 1873. I mean, prenatal care probably didn't really exist in any way that we recognize it today. So it's not a far stretch of the imagination that there might have been a cause for Celia's deficiencies. Especially when you get into later on after the murders, people that lived near them and interacted with them said that none of them were quite right. So then at the same time with everything with her developmental issues, it's also not a far stretch to think that she was born of a brother sister pairing and that can cause some massive issues because that's not supposed to happen. So Celia continued her developmental issues. Shortly after she was born, we jump ahead again another handful of years. So somewhere between 1878 and 1880, Julia married and then subsequently died in childbirth. About the same time that Julia died in childbirth, the rest of the Rose family packed up, sold the farm, sold the hillside, and hightailed it to a town where they had no friends, no family, no connections, and they settled in the Pleasant Valley in Richland County, which was several hours north of Pike County, of where they're from. Which, in this day and age, isn't too unusual but back then it was you don't leave for that area already having a job or whatever so like you're literally just packing up and leaving for no reason and everybody was like why are you doing this why are you here what is going on we don't understand you also don't move into a new area And just become accepted, especially when you don't socialize, you don't really make any overtures to fit in. And that's exactly what the Rose family did. They just kind of existed. David began running the gristmill for the Schrack brothers. Um, They had started to settle the valley. The Schrack brothers had brought a bunch of land. They built what is now Malabar Inn and is still a functioning restaurant. And they built the gristmill that David Rose ran. Is the Malabar Inn the one on the far side of the field by the pond? Yes. Where they have a tie-up for horses? Okay. Yep. If you ride all the way over there, you can tie up, walk across the street, and go have lunch or dinner. It's a really cool area. You can still visit the Sealy Rose house today. And in fact, I did. Amanda was busy. <sighs> well, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so jealous. I wish I could have been there. It was a lot of fun. But I did have some of the best company, though. Instead, I was out contracting COVID, so that's fun. Yeah, how dare you? I know, I'm sorry. For the first time in a very long time, Malabar Farm, who now owns the Sealy Rose House, opened up the Sealy Rose House for visitors a few weeks ago. And I was able to go visit. I I don't even remember. I think I saw it on their Facebook page. And then it just worked out that I had that Saturday morning free and dragged the boy and the kids and we went. 
and got to speak to the guy that actually basically wrote the book on it. So we actually got to go in the house. They had all sorts of cool poster boards up about the history of Seely and the murders and the story. And we got to speak to one of the park staff there that told us some stories and walked us through everything. And we got to visit the rest of the farm and the big barn and drove past Guy Berry's house, which is now the weaving and fiber guild. And the schoolhouse where Seely went to school is that brick building on the corner right at the entrance of the the park and okay learned a lot so what I didn't realize is growing up I always heard the story beginning with the murders what we didn't learn about or what I didn't learn about in my younger years and I basically live out at Malabar farm during the the spring and summer and fall We trail ride out there probably once or twice a week. It's just, they have all sorts of cool um, programs and things that go on. They've got an awesome play set for the kids. They've got a visitor center. They sell some of the best fudge out there that I've ever had. They sell beef from the farm that they've raised and everything. So it's a really cool interactive working farm that has been turned into a state park. So... I had always heard the story starting with the murders. What I didn't realize is when when all of this happened, when these murders happened, Celie was 23 years old and she still had the mind of about a first grader, according to her teachers. And she was not physically attractive. There was actually some talk, this was the first time I'd heard it, that she perhaps had um, Down syndrome. And hmm. it doesn't really appear that way from a couple of the pictures that they have of her, but there's some stories that she perhaps from later in life after the murders thinking that she had that diagnosis. So she was teased mercilessly by the kids at school. Oftentimes she was in classes with kids that were five and six and seven years younger than her because she just could not understand or retain information. And depending on who you talked to and what we read, she either was so challenged that she could not even prepare meals or really take care of herself in any way. There was one story that she had a playhouse in the creek behind the house And in her 20s, at 20 years old, 22 years old, she would go out there and make mud pies like a child. Yeah, there was a anecdote her one teacher would tell about how at the age of 23, Celie would be out during break time slash recess, whatever it was called back then, playing with like essentially what would be first graders, like six, seven year olds. And they would basically be more intelligent than her. And that's really kind of sad. Yeah. And though her mind was delayed, her body and her hormones were not. And Celie loved the boys. The boys did not love Celia. So there was quite a, a list of young men that she chased. And... She fixated on them and obsessed over some of them. Um, The first one that was recorded that she had a fixation on was a young man named Clem Herring. She would write Clem love letters, which he refused to respond to. And instead of taking the hint, which she may not have been capable of doing, she began to steal his mail so that he would have to come see her to get his correspondence. That's not, that's something that a six or seven year old does. That's not something that a 20 something year old does, right? Correct. Now, side note, Clem Herring, it was the one that actually ended up selling the property to Lewis Bronfield that has been later turned into Malabar Farm. Just a cool side note there. Um, so when Clem Herring refused her attentions, 
she turned her her fixation to another local farm boy and his name was not given he never responded to her love letters he never responded to her attentions but he did eventually and very quickly laugh in her face when she gave him a love letter somewhere in public depending on the source it was at school another source said it was at church um and that is when at 23 years old her attention turned to a younger man he's described as a man in everything that i've read and i i understand the difference in the time that 16 years old a hundred and some years ago asked for a lot more maturity than it does now in a lot of ways but also remember that she was 23 she was seven years older than him and she was head over heels in love with Guy Barry. What I learned on the tour out at Malabar Farm that I did not know until then was that standing in the back door of Celia's house, you had a direct line of sight across the creek, 200 to 300 yards tops, was Guy Barry's house. They were neighbors. They shared a property line which I thought was kind of interesting. That is very close and kind of hard to like find an excuse to let her down gently, I guess, because she can literally look out her back door and see you. It was close enough that you could see in his windows kind of thing. Um, So Guy, he was a very kind hearted young man He didn't have it in him to just be mean to her. He felt bad for her with some of her disabilities and things and thought she was harmless. But her attentions were so much. It was just so much. And he tried several times to let her down gently, never encouraged her attentions that anybody knew of. And she just, she didn't have the mental capacity to understand and so she took his lack of meanness as return of her feelings so when her attention started to get to be too much he finally told her he was like Celie look our parents are never going to allow this match to happen she took that to heart I mean but it wasn't just like oh you guys can't be together wasn't she going around town telling people they were engaged? Yes. And that's what... Or something? That's what started to make him the most uncomfortable. She was telling people that they were engaged. She, again, depending on the source, there was a couple of mentions that she was even going to like the local general store and shopping for wedding stuff and telling people that they were getting married. And he's like uh i didn't sign up for this (laughs) so he tells seely that their families are saying no now seely in her see this is where i start to have trouble with the whole she's developmentally delayed i grew up with my mom being a therapeutic riding instructor at the local riding school and working with all of these kids with different and adults with all sorts of different handicaps and developmental problems And there is a huge, huge difference between a developmental delay or a handicap, physical or mental, and flat out being a sociopath. Like a developmental delay or a mental delay does not make you a killer. It just doesn't. (laughs) So Celie, when she hears this from Guy... Her reaction is, okay, well, if my family's the problem, then I'm just going to kill my family. If your family's the problem, then I'm going to kill them both. And from all reports, she was disturbingly calm about this. Yeah, I, I don't know where I stand on this because all the, there were allegations of physical and sexual abuse with her and her family. Yeah. Um, as well as all the teasing and everything that she grew up with 
I wonder being raised in that not quite so ideal environment kind of twisted her senses sort of in that way as opposed to like being raised in a household today where hopefully you have therapy and love and support and a bunch of other things that she didn't have that makes you go yeah maybe killing my family isn't the answer to this apparently Celie had a second cousin that around the same time that she was going through the trial for these murders was the second cousin was convicted of murder and actually put to death at the electric chair at the Ohio penitentiary. Oh, so maybe it just runs in the family. There's lots of things that make you go, hmm, (laughs) with this family. Yeah. Anyway, Celie starts this plan. Her dad ran a grist mill. Grist mill is grains. What comes with grain? Rats, right? Pests. Vermin. So her father always kept rough on rats, rat poisoning around for keeping the mill free and clear of vermin. Again, this is where I start to wonder, and we'll probably never know, but if she was so mentally deficient, and I use that with quotations from the time period, that she could barely take care of herself or spent time making mud pies and things where did she uh, where did she get the whole knowledge of this will kill them yeah i i don't think she was as bad off maybe as current legend has her being and i guess going jumping from oh this kills rats to oh this will kill a person isn't that far of a leap it's not, and because this particular rat poison was basically straight arsenic, I also have to, to think that she was told on a regular basis by her parents to not touch this, it will kill you. I mean, probably. So my imagining is she had been told on a regular basis that it would kill you, and so she knew that it would kill you. Then that begs the question of how, if she was so deficient, did she, did she really make breakfast for everybody on a regular basis? And it was just something that was a routine for her. Did she just help her mother make breakfast? And did her mother maybe suspect something was going on? And that's why she didn't eat a lot of the breakfast that day. Um, Yeah, there was a lot of things with, like, she wasn't able to make food on her own. She could help, but she couldn't make it on her own. So my question is, if her mother's in the kitchen cooking with her, and she's so not right that she can't do it herself and probably shouldn't be left unsupervised, at what point would she have been left alone long enough to not only grab the rat poison but also mix it into the cottage cheese and then put the rat poison back before her mother figured out or saw what she was doing yeah but it it happened i mean it happened it's just like how but again that goes back to there was a lot going on where her her whole family just wasn't quite right I mean, at the time of the poisoning, her brother Walter was 38 years old and still living with his family. That's a little unusual in that time, that time frame. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not just still living with his family, because I understand like needing to live near your family if your mother is old and your father is so severely disabled and they're taking care of your younger sister, uh, who can't take care of herself but living with them and living near them with your own family are two completely different things right and even at that time that it was not unusual for families to live in the same house but he wasn't married he didn't have his own children and they lived in a small community where that was unusual so 
again, just some oddities with the entire family. Now, the story varies some on what was actually poisoned. The story told at Malabar Farm says cottage cheese. I've also heard a bread pudding or porridge. I think in most of the newspapers it said cottage cheese. Yeah, it just... But then also the newspapers called her Amelia for like two paragraphs in the middle of the article. So I don't fucking know. (laughs) How many times doing this have we run into the newspapers just being completely inaccurate on stuff? Which is like so contradicting themselves. Like... Yeah. So Celie poisoned her family. And this is once again where the story gets a little haywire. And there's several different versions of it. But her father found her, her mother collapsed on the floor. And either her mother called out and and yelled for her father or he went out to do chores and begin his day and came back in and found her or something. But her mother, Rebecca collapsed first. David then went to fetch the doctor and apparently on his way, this is what we talked about at the actual Celie Rose house. And then we'll cover some of the other versions of it. But he went he hitched up the horse and went to get the town doctor he got a few miles up the road and started to get extremely thirsty he stopped at a neighbor's house asked for some water and then as he took a sip of water collapsed vomiting violently they put him back in his carriage in his wagon and took him back to his house where they found rebecca in the same state of of being somebody sent for the doctor at that point or went for the doctor at that point and another neighbor somebody else said that they found walter in a ditch vomiting violently so all three of them are violently ill (laughs) projectile poisoned the doctor shows up and immediately becomes concerned because this is not right. He knows something's going on and made a note that Celia Rose sat in the corner watching all of this with the utmost fascination. She was not worried. She was not panicked. She was not confused. And she also was the only one in the family not showing signs of sickness. And in some cases, she was actually giggling as well. Yeah. So the whole, the details of how the doctor was gotten, where her dad was found, how her brother was found, they vary slightly depending on the story that you you are told or read. But yeah, the, the one from the newspapers said that her mom was the first to get sick. And she sent Celie to the mill to grab her father. Her father came back, saw her mother was sick, told Celie to watch her mother, and then went to get the doctor. He got the doctor, and then on the way back was when he become became thirsty and stopped for water and then got ill. And then after they were back, a neighbor came and said that their son was sick as well, and the, so the son was brought home. That was how the series of events played out, according to the newspaper I found. But regardless, everybody's sick except for Celie. Right. Now, the other thing that I found really interesting is there's such a sense of urgency and like everybody was immediately sick. But then her father ended up dying first, which in some ways makes sense because he was already sickly and he was the oldest. Um, Yeah. So he died within 24 hours. Then Walter, who was younger and healthy by everything that I could find, he took a week to die. Now, Rebecca collapsed first, but she also didn't eat as much, apparently. And I also wonder if she, because she got sick first, maybe purged more of the poison out of her system before it could do damage. But she ended up having to be repoisoned 
And now the sheriff knew something was up. This was long before forensics really became a thing. There wasn't a lot of testing that they could do to prove something was amiss, but they knew something was wrong. So they start to question Seely. And at this time, when her, her father and her brother died, her mother was still alive and she was protecting her daughter. For whatever reason, this she knew, Rebecca knew what Seely had done. I mean, you can't not know. Right. And again, that goes back to, in my mind, she somehow managed to poison everybody while she was helping her mother make breakfast and nobody stopped her. Like, did she try it before? And they, like, it just, there's, I have so many questions. I know. Rebecca was protecting Celie. She lost her first daughter to childbirth and now her husband and her son were gone. She was in her older years at that time. She, I'm going to guess, just did not want to be alone. And for some reason, protected Seely. Now, Seely stayed her course and repoisoned her mother. And her mother died almost a month later of the same symptoms. See, and that's the other thing to me. If you knew or even suspected, how did she manage to do it a second time? I have no idea. And you're not talking she laid low for a couple of years and then caught her by surprise. You're talking in the matter of a couple of weeks. It just... I mean, at that point, was her mother just like, oh yeah, I know she's going to poison me at some point. But what, like you said, my husband's gone, my son is gone, my daughter's gone. I'm left with this person who I don't even know if I consider them my child at this point because they murdered my entire family and I just I can't go on so like eh, why not I don't know it's just another one of those questions that I don't think we're gonna have an answer for so the sheriff at that point was highly suspicious there were a couple of girls that lived just up the road that were several years younger than Celie, but were what Celie considered good friends. The sheriff went to these girls, they were sisters, and asked them if they could assist with getting confession out of Celie. And again, Celie had trouble taking care of herself. I don't know if some of the townspeople were helping take care of her. I don't know if she was, again, better at taking care of herself than the the stories say now but the sheriff is concocting this plan to get a confession out of Celie and in the meantime Celie makes up a pie and takes it to the Barry household and she tells again several versions of this story so the first version that I found is she took this pie to the Barry household and gave it to Mrs. Barry and told her that it was a gift and it was just for her and Mr. Barry and their younger daughter that she had made Guy his own treat and please don't let him have any of the pie. The berries were not stupid. I was going to say, after an entire family is dead from uh, just, uh, no, right. all the red flags. Rumors had to have been flying at that point. It's a small community She's not exactly a criminal mastermind. These people's homes were maybe two football fields apart from each other. I mean, and the 1800s being what they were, people knew what arsenic poisoning looked like. Yes. Two and two together wasn't hard. Right. So the second version of that story is that Celie made a pie, took it to the Barry household, and gave it to Guy and told him that it was just for his family and she would give him his gift later. Don't eat any of the pie. Either way, the pie got thrown out the back door, got thrown out in the trash. It got thrown out. But the family's chickens, and if you've ever been around chickens, you understand what kind of little trash pandas they really are, got into the pie 
and the chickens ended up dead. So assumption is, logical conclusion is, she poisoned the pie. Mm -hmm. She attempted to kill three more people after killing the three members of her family. Well, at that point, the sheriff is like, look, we've got to get a confession out of her. She's not going to stop trying. And obviously she's just sneaky enough that she's been able to do this twice to her own parents, to her own mother, her own family. It's only a matter of time before she comes up with something more devious and offs the Barry family too. So the one of the girls or both of the girls that she was friends with came over to help her with some sort of chores and they were in the barn. The sheriff positioned himself in the hayloft of the barn. And as they're going about doing their chores, the the girls were chatting. And one of the sisters mentioned to Celie that she was she had found a local boy that she really was in love with and she hoped to marry. But she just, her parents were not ever going to be okay with the union and she just didn't know what to do. And Celie was like, Hey, I can tell you, are you ready to hear this? All you have to do is take some of this rat poison and mix it into one of your family's meals and they won't be a problem anymore. And this girl somehow managed to keep her cool and asked Celie, how do you know that? That's awful. Why would you say such a thing? And Celie was like, because how do you think I got my family out of the way so that I can marry Guy? And at that point, the sheriff came out of the hayloft. Celie was arrested. She stood trial. Now, I don't know what the actual conversation was with the girls. I'm completely making that up, but I'm imagining that's how the scenario went. Just saying. So Celie then stood trial and she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. That does not mean that she walked free from that. It means that they sent her to the Toledo Insane Asylum. And that is where she stayed until that was shut down. And then she was transferred to the Lima State Hospital. And she stayed there until she died in 1934. Now, here's really a weird thing. She died in 1934, but you remember her birthday was March 13th of 1873. She died at 61 years old on March 14th, 1934. She just had to get that extra year in. Died the day after her 61st birthday. Now, here's a weird side note for you. This sounds like it was so long ago and everything. Guess what? I just did a will for a gentleman today at work that he was born in December of 1929. He's 92 years old. So, Holy crap. 1934, not even 100 years ago. Yeah. There were people, I just interacted with a guy. I got flirted with by an old man, by the way. He was, he had me feeling all sorts of full of myself. He thought I was the prettiest thing he'd ever met. Um, but I just interacted with a gentleman today that was born five years before Celie died. Yeah, I mean, my grandpa would have been 90 this year. Yeah. But just to put that it's in not perspective. not that long ago. No. Yeah. So Celie is actually buried at the Lima State Hospital. Um, go figure. She had no family to claim her body when she died because, you know, she killed them all. So she's actually buried in the Lima State Hospital. She is in grave. I want to say it was like 301. I'm going to find my, the right page in my notes. Yeah. She was buried in grave 301 in her headstone the white cross which is the same white cross that all 300 plus other graves have hers is the only one with a photograph attached to it now that's the story of Celie rose but her story doesn't end with death in some ways her story becomes bigger after death mm-hmm. so the the graveyard at the lima state hospital her ghost apparently haunts the graveyard there there is a girl in white that is seen on a regular basis walking the graveyard. I'm not 100% sure why 
the legend is so insistent that it's Celia Rose, but it is. Now, Lima, that's where my dad's side of the family's from, so I'm very familiar with how to get there, is about two and a half hours west from Malabar Farm. Nowhere near each other, right? Malima is almost to the border of Indiana. Malabar Farm is by the intersection of 71 and 30, right in the middle of northwestern of northern Ohio, of north central Ohio. Somehow, despite dying and apparently haunting the graveyard in Lima, there are a lot of stories of Celia haunting Malabar Farm to this day. To the point of Malabar Farm is one of the top five most haunted places in America due to Sealy. <laughs> I believe it. You've seen my reaction every time we pass that stupid house. <laughs> well, so shortly after we went and toured the house, inside the house, um, we then went and rode the horses. I took him and we toured Malabar Farm on horseback. And I took him up past Celie's house on Della and Harley. And it was a kind of a cool, I got a really cool video that I'll share on Facebook. I put it in our story a few, about a week and a half ago, but I'll share it on our page when this is coming out. Kind of get an interesting perspective of what gives Amanda the heebie-jeebies every time we ride by. I mean, just, we talked about, I think, on an earlier episode about Red just... Steady as a rock, never thought nothing of anything. Past the graveyard and past that house. Ears up, nose to chest, huffing and puffing and sidestepping. Yeah. Now, here's the other thing. That graveyard that's on the farm is not where Celia's family's buried. Oh. I did not. I didn't realize that. I thought that's where her family was. No. Do you know where right before the gas plant on Pleasant Valley Road coming into Malabar Farm, that yep. that brick church and the graveyard mm-hmm. off to the left, Pleasant Valley Cemetery, oh. that is where they're buried. Yeah. Hmm. Then who the heck's buried in the graveyard in Malabar? Uh, Why does it give me the creeps? I'm not sure. I think it was just a town cemetery. Um, it's the Shrek... Uh, We'll have to look. We'll have. To, we'll just have to go out there and ride. I was ride gonna and say, look. Andrew, we have to go and do some headstone rubbing. Yeah. Research. <laughs> so, because we stopped at the Pleasant Valley Cemetery and I got pictures of the rose headstone in the church. So, um, now the grist mill that Celia's father ran was not in good shape when the farm was sold um, to Lewis Bromfield. And he had the grist mill dismantled. He used beams from the grist mill in the building of the bank barn on the farm, the big white barn with the mural, where they hold all sorts of events in the upper loft of the barn now. And in the lower section of the barn, they have a petting zoo. They, it, it's a really, really cool thing. But they used beams from that grist mill in the building of that barn. He also used the sandstone blocks from the grist mill in the landscaping around the big house, all of which I have some really cool pictures on a dark, cloudy day, by the way. Perfect. Celia Rose caught the attention, that story caught the attention of a man named Mark Jordan back in the 80s, and he has done a lot of research and written several books on Celia's story. He even wrote a play called the Celia Rose story, Celia Rose play, I forget what the actual title is, but it's Celia Rose something. And that play was put on in the loft of the barn at the big house for 14 years from 2002, from 2000 until 2014, every October. And the play, the first year was, there was a lot of goings on that were very suspicious and made him and the crew believe that it was being haunted by Celia herself. There was lights that flickered. There were issues with sound equipment that went on. There were some signs that lit up when they were not supposed to. And it all led to the director and some of the crew 
telling Celia that they were here to tell her story and they couldn't do that if she continued to molest the, the goings on. And they never had another problem after that, but there was always a sense of, of her presence during this play by all reports. I never got to see the play, which I'm kind of sad about, but there was the book was finally released and published about this time last year. It's available on Amazon. It's available at the visitor center at Malabar farm now. So kind of cool. Louis Bromfield also mentioned the whole mystery in one of his books in the 1940s. Um, Taps ghost hunters did an episode back in 2014 investigating the Seeley Rose house and the big house. I thought that was pretty cool. I remember when that came out. I don't remember that one specifically, but I'll have to go back. Yeah. I want to say it was, I thought I wrote down, but I don't see it off the top of my head on my notes now. Plus I forgot to turn the light on in my room. So it's kind of dark in here and I never actually typed up my notes on this. They're all handwritten because that's just how I roll. Are you doing spooky scaries in the dark? I am and I'm totally okay with it. It's fine. Yeah, I just, I didn't write down the actual episode, just that it was, Ghost Hunters was there in 2014. And then I just saw randomly on a Facebook ad today that Ghost Hunters is starting up their show again on one of, on the new Discover Netflix thing. Yep. So. They started it up on Discover. I thought that was kind of cool. I always enjoyed that show. Um, so that is Celia Rose. It has become a nationally known story, and I guess there's actually been some international attention, and there's possibly a screenwrite going on right now that may end up in a movie deal. I have an extra tidbit that I found, if you want an extra tidbit. I always want an extra tidbit. It is an article that I found from... Uh, the Butler Enterprise, dated September 17th, uh, I'm assuming that's 1896, I just wrote 96, it's not 1996, that's for sure. <laughs> no, it's 1896, that's when all this happened. Um, and it, it made me laugh. Um, oh no. I think it's supposed to be more of a serious article, but just, just, just wait for this one, I'll try to get through it. A, without coughing, B, without laughing. What in the world did you find about any of this that's funny? Quote, When our readers pursue this article, there will no longer be any doubt in their minds as to the insanity of Celia Rose, who is in the county jail for murdering her father, mother, and brother. L.O. Mengert and J.M. Reed are her attorneys, and of course, in the consultations with her, she has learned to know them. Saturday, Mr. Mangert went to jail to give his client some newspapers, and a S.H.I.E.L.D. reporter went with him as a bodyguard. (laughs) The two conversed with Celia, and during the conversation, she ventured the assertion that Mr. Mangert is good-looking. This, of course, settles all doubt as to her sanity, and all will at once pronounce her mentally defective. No sane person, of course, would accuse Lewis Mengert of being handsome. Oh, ouch. (laughs) The reporter who overheard the remark is expected to be retained by the defense as a witness, as upon his oath alone would it be proven that the girl is not responsible for what she says or does. End quote. It just, it made me laugh because there's this entire article and the purpose of this article is just to burn this poor lawyer. Okay, but like, (laughs) that that whole thing is all sorts of messed up. So it starts with, the funny starts with, I took a S.H.I.E.L.D. reporter with me as a bodyguard. Yeah. Say say what now? (laughs) What kind of reporter is this? I have no idea. And then... But just... Yeah, nobody's gonna believe she's anything but insane, because she thinks he's good-looking, and we all know there's... You gotta be blind to think that. He's convinced he's a 10, and he is actually a 3? 
she thinks he's a 10, he's really a negative 10, and so, yeah, she's insane. We all know it now. Gotta witness. <laughs> Just that the reporter was then called as a witness to testify to her insanity because she thought the dude was handsome. And you know, Just... you know that's probably what got her off on insanity. It probably is. Oh my goodness. Oh, anyway. It made me giggle. It, it was pretty giggle-worthy, I'm not gonna lie. You managed to find something funny. Gotta lighten it up a little bit. Yeah. All the murder and attempted murder. and. I, f- yeah. I forget sometimes because, again, I've heard this story and spent so much time out at Malabar Farm in my, my life. I forget in some ways how gruesome it is when you're being introduced to it. I mean, just... Arsenic isn't a fun thing because you start puking and then you get dehydrated, but you literally can't keep anything down, which means unless you have an IV in you, which wasn't a thing back then, question mark, uh, you're, you're, you're going to die of dehydration. Yeah. And liver failure and kidney failure. Talk of, it's, not a, it's not a pleasant way to go. I say talk about an awful way to go. So, Seely crazy she apparently she lived out her life as a model inmate at the insane asylum though so who knows once she was away from the situation she was in what changed or if they just didn't ever give her any kind of access she was getting the help she needed but i know insane asylums and that was not the case it probably still technically isn't but yeah. yeah let's just Moving let's on. just put it this way when i was doing some reading on that part of her life the toledo asylum could probably be its own episode so yeah yeah anyway speaking of other episodes what are we doing next uh our next episode keeping with the uh revolutionary war theme and the 1800s theme uh we're going to be delicately discussing some of the more wild tales of the Underground Railroad. I am so looking forward to this one. I am so excited for this one. We are going to uh, do our best to attempt to stay away from too much history and all of the perspectives and just slavery is bad. And that's all we're really going to say about that. This is definitely going to be about legends how the underground railroad got its name spoilers no one really knows (laughs) there's a lot of amazing stories of individuals that made a huge difference in a lot of folks lives so we are Mm -hmm. gonna celebrate that and not shy away from some of the crazy stuff because that's how we roll and try not to cry yeah yeah, we are... That's not going to happen. There will be a lot of crying on my end. Yeah. I'm very, very emotional like that sometimes. Well, it's an emotional topic, but mm-hmm. we are going to just touch on the surface of this for right now. And if we want to dig, you know, if we get to where we dig deeper into it later, I think we may end up doing more segments on it at some point. Um, so, yeah, it's we're going to touch on the, the Underground Railroad and some of the amazing stories and people that went with it and there are some amazing stories yeah i am looking forward to this one who am i kidding i look forward to all of them <gasps> I know oh you do. my goodness speaking of i almost forgot so when i went and toured the Seely rose house i put a picture up on our instagram account and we had a gentleman get a hold of us and make a couple of comments and and tell us a really interesting story about when Jean Fredericks lived in the Seely Rose house for a while and oh yes that while living there her daughter had a child and her baby huh. was fussing one night and Jean Fredericks daughter went down to to soothe her daughter to check on her daughter and when she did that there was a woman that had soothed the baby and got up and walked up the stairs and disappeared as she walked up the stairs. 
Ooh, that's creepy. Yeah. So that I thought was really interesting. That was one of our, our listeners inputs there. His wife was a tour guide out there for a while. And, um, yeah, my friend Sam did some work out there out of high school and had some really interesting input on some of the big house stuff. So cool place. I really sorry. I almost forgot that. We'll have to, I don't know if you'll be able to splice that in somewhere before we start talking about the next episode, but Eh, maybe you'll figure it out. I believe in you. I probably won't even try because I always mess it up. Yeah. All right, guys, you know the drill. Rate, like, review, tell your friends, send us an email, shoot us a, a comment, a DM somewhere. We are loving hearing everybody's stories. Much, much appreciate all of the input on the Helltown episode. It just makes my day. I sit there over my lunch break at work and, and read all these comments and things. Um, and we will see you all next time. We will see you guys next time. This has been A&A Tall Tales, an independently written, recorded, and produced podcast. Our intro sounds are Crackling Fireplace by Julius H. and Nightwoods by Widget Studios. Our intro song is Harmonica Solo by Julius H. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.